What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. Are you going to cry? Really? It wouldn't be a Yorgos Lanthimos movie without an upsetting reference to an animal. <laughs> so true. That's Rachel Weiss and Olivia Coleman in The Favorite, the new film from the director of The Lobster, Dogtooth, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. On this week's show, our review of The Favorite, which also stars Emma Stone. And we'll review another film that many are calling one of the best of the year, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, which is currently playing in limited release before coming to Netflix next weekend. All that and more. Josh, that eyeliner makes you look like the owl from Buster Scruggs. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Don't mind us if we seem a little distracted this episode. We might just be trying to cram in a few movies while we're recording. That's basically what it's come down to at this point in the year. Uh, what? Sorry, what? I was... <laughs> exactly. Let me, let me hit pause. <laughs> exactly. I hope you're enjoying that one. I hope it possibly contends for your number one spot. It is just a few weeks away from our taping of the top 10 films of 2018, and we are so fortunate as to have many screeners at home, and that does require a lot of attention. In fact, I will say this. I hope the show, first of all, is worthy of everyone downloading it or listening to it on the radio. But if it is, I hope they appreciate that it's ridiculous that we're taping an episode <laughs> at all. We really should just shut down from Thanksgiving yeah. until mid-December when we record that show because there's so much that we want to see just and watch catch movies. up on. I think it would probably result in maybe broader top 10 lists yeah. um, with a few surprising titles on it that we wouldn't have otherwise. But I don't know if listeners would want to exchange that for no hmm. episodes for a month. Maybe Halloween. Maybe we started Halloween. Just <laughs> go, all of go November. Go all the way back to Halloween. All of November and part of December. <laughs> I don't know why it couldn't work. Could give it a try. <laughs> a couple of high-profile movies we did get to. Alfonso Coron's Roma and the favorite from Yorgos Lanthimos. Roma is Coron's first film since 2013's Gravity. It's set in his native Mexico City in the early 1970s. It's autobiographical and he's the writer, the director, the cinematographer, and the co-editor of the film. Along with The Star is Born, Roma is probably the current Best Picture frontrunner, which that sounds right, even though I have to say I haven't looked at a lot of those prognostications and predictions. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, makes sense. You tell me you haven't uh, broken down the odds on the Oscars already, Adam? I know I you not. love to do that. No, I haven't made time for it. Again, I'm watching too many movies here, Josh, doing serious cinephile work. We will have a review of Roma later in the show, along with your thoughts on Coron's best film that isn't Roma. But first, director Yorgos Lanthimos trades in the high-concept, parallel-universe plots of The Lobster and Dogtooth for an 18th-century costume drama with the favorite. Does the genre suit him? The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see. And I heard the word fat. Fat. Ah. And ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. Arr. 
Olivia Coleman as the beleaguered queen, Rachel Weiss as her ruthless but most trusted friend and advisor, Lady Sarah, and Emma Stone as the interloping viper, Abigail there. And just when I thought last week's conversation about the ballad of Buster Scruggs had exhausted the need to come up with more synonyms for cynicism, hmm. we have... The Favorite, a film with a decidedly lower body count than Scruggs, with regard to on-screen casualties anyway, but arguably even a more ascetic view of human nature. Nobody in Queen Anne's early 18th century court gets shot in the back by a rival, as we see in the Cone's Old West, though a rifle may not so accidentally get fired in one's general direction to deliver a pointed message during an otherwise elegant afternoon of pigeon shooting, and even the lowliest kitchen helper, with no power or political agenda to angle for, is more likely to connive to inflict pain or embarrassment than spare a moment of compassion for a new servant. So, Josh, who did you find the most redeemable in this basket of deplorables? Or perhaps, who did you find the most entertainingly irredeemable? Coleman's exhaustingly needy childlike monarch, Vice's icy, brutally honest Sarah, Stone's seemingly wide-eyed schemer, or rakish puppet master Yorgos Lanthimos, so determined to devise and explore hermetically sealed worlds that present their own unique language, protocols, and acrid blend of decorum and debauchery. Yeah, this is quite the cheery vision of humanity, isn't it? As we would expect from Melanthemos. I think we both knew what we were getting into at this point uh, from that director. And for the most part, we both really enjoy uh, getting into mm-hmm. these sorts of dramas that that he gives us. Great question. Um I would argue they're all redeemable. Nice, <laughs> but I would, <laughs> I would also say um, such compassion. Gosh, <laughs> I guess I guess I would say that some of them have more redeeming qualities than others. Let's start at the bottom, which it sounds like we both agree is Emma Stone's Abigail. Maybe uh, not. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> she is just out for the kill from the beginning, hmm. and understandably so. For many reasons, the more we hear about her past and, as you said, her station in her class. Um, but, man, she's – look out. Look out for her, right? And it is, to answer your other question, a perverse delight to watch Stone get to showcase new levels of deceitfulness, uh, especially when her early reputation for sure is as a sweet-natured – someone who plays sweet-natured parts, right? Rachel Vice, Lady Sarah – I think there might be a little bit of genuine love there for the queen, and mm-hmm. it's um, gotten just tangled up in plays for political power and all sorts of other things that we see happen in, in this film. So that that seems to have faded and faded until it's almost entirely gone. But there is – you still see glimmers of it that makes her – you know, has some redeemable qualities. Um I think Queen Anne, and this is maybe tied to how I enjoyed the performances, enjoyed them all, mm-hmm. thought they were all great. But Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne is just fantastic in the way that she's at once the most – she is the most easily manipulated in some ways. Mm-hmm. But she's also the master manipulator. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that she's at the top of the chain, right? Mm-hmm. She's the queen. But she plays that card throughout. And Coleman just gives her uh, – there's a lot of King Lear going on in this movie. And I think Coleman captures what that play has is this idea of a monarch as a having this weary ferocity of a dying animal. There's a desperation to her so that she's at once the movie's most monstrous presence when she really wields that power. Mm -hmm. But she's also, I found her to be the most sympathetic and maybe having the most redeemable qualities 
because of that. So that's sort of where I landed mm-hmm. after a first viewing of of this in one way perfect Lanthimos film in the themes that it's exploring and intriguingly different in mm. that costume drama setting. Yeah. I think this movie could have been still a very good film had it been just about taking that pleasure in watching this much bad behavior portrayed as artfully as it is and with such aplomb. But I think what elevates it for me a little bit and what gets back to the question I posed to you is that as much as I loathed each one of these characters for a variety of different reasons, I also lamented the misfortunes of all three, lamented what put them all in the situation, some more than others, but put them in the situation that requires them to be as needy or as manipulative and scheming and exploitative as they ultimately are. I think you're probably right about Emma Stone, especially by the end of the film, her character, Abigail, it's fair to say, is the least redeemable in a lot of ways. But there's a key line for me in the movie that comes about three quarters of the way through during her battle with Lady Sarah. And without revealing any of the circumstances, I can say the line, she says, I'm safe now. And in that moment, if you just take it on face value, it sounds as if she's saying, you can't touch me anymore. And she is saying that. But what she's really saying, if you've seen it and you know the circumstances in particular, you understand that she truly is now finally in a position where she's not as vulnerable as she has been up to this point in her entire life. She can't be as easily victimized as that's she it. has been and before. And so the, yeah, the tenuousness of her survival is something that did give me an appreciation for her shrewdness. You understand that it really is not just about ambition or greed or whatever might drive people to act in this way. It's about that survival. All three characters in a lot of ways, I would say, are people who are incapable of gratification. There are moments where they maybe get some solace, especially sexually. I think those moments are really the only ones that provide any kind of pleasure whatsoever. But think about Coleman, who I agree with you, is really stunning here. And she's the one who, despite how needy she is and how demanding she is and how incompetent she is as a leader, you recognize that she carries so much pathos and that she is a victim herself. We understand more of that as we go throughout the film, including how much pain physically she is in and has suffered in her life. So that skews our perspective as well. But back to this idea of gratification, think about how many times in the film we see her lose her mind when she is confronted with joy of any kind whatsoever. The moment when she's walking by with one of the characters I'm blanking on at the moment and she looks out, I think it's Abigail, and she looks out and they admire some kids performing with a conductor. It's like a group of five and it's really lovely music. And the look on her face as it turns from one of recognition of that sound and the pleasure of it into horror. There's something about it that she immediately recoils from. There's also a dance scene in the film that we may talk more about, a bit of an anachronistic dance scene that's really pretty great in this film that she also flips out about and gets immediately angry about. So you're dealing with characters who all in their own way, I suppose, detached and very difficult. But as we do gain that recognition of their circumstances. Even Lady Sarah, I would say, by the end of the film, we do recognize that that honesty that she has, that brutal honesty, may actually come from a place of love. Yes, she'll do whatever she can to 
protect herself and protect her standing, but she may be the one who is ultimately serving the queen the most. So the fact that we at least get to think about those questions and consider those characters that way is a real strength of this film. You're right that the queen is a very tortured figure in ways that we come to understand, but maybe not entirely fully. Um, Abigail we understand is a tortured figure as well. Mm -hmm. We get an explicit picture of that. I guess I fell the way I did towards your question because I asked myself, once each of these three characters do get to a position of power, and that's one of the intriguing things about this film is watching that change, Mm -hmm. right? Go back and forth. What do they do with that power? And, And who's the most vindictive and awful when they hold yes, it? Yes, undeniably. And there is a very queasy scene that I won't give away mm-hmm. involving Abigail towards the end of the film that kind of like revealed her true colors to me. Of if, if she were in the queen's place, right. it would probably look very differently than Anne being in that place. And we will say for people who have seen it or people who haven't seen it but eventually do, it is a scene, I know the one you're talking about, that involves an animal. Of course. Right. And (laughs) I will note as well that actually that moment, the moment you're talking about, which we will dance around a little bit, but it's based on a shriek or it comes out of a recognition of a cry that happens in that scene that's actually set up by a moment earlier in the film that also adds to Olivia Coleman's sense of pathos and the vulnerability Mm -hmm. of her character. There's a moment where Abigail exploits the fact that she is in proximity to the queen and she is about to be exiled or something bad is going to happen to her. And so she actually breaks down and cries like a little child in that moment. And the queen can't resist in that moment, at least exploring what that cry is and what the problem is. There is that sympathetic side of her. And again, it does set up that moment at the end of the film, why she would react to it that way. So you mentioned the animal element. You've referenced the dance. These are two things that Lanthimos films, most of them that Mm -hmm. we've seen, do incorporate in a really idiosyncratic way. I'm guessing that all of these flourishes worked for you because in a lot of ways, this is a very standard costume drama. I mean, the costumes themselves are opulent and gorgeous. And the rooms where this is filmed on an estate in England, um, the tapestry-lined walls, these are giant spaces, absolutely gorgeous. So this looks and plays the part Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, But as Stanley Kubrick did with Barry Lyndon, and Kubrick as a filmmaker often referenced alongside Lanthimos because I think they both have this bleak vision of humanity Mm -hmm. and like to explore, um, just to expose the folly of humankind. I think they both like to do that, and Kubrick did with a period piece. This really has a lot of those touches that set it apart. Another one might be the fisheye lens that he occasionally goes to. I don't know offhand if that's something that has been a recurring technique in his other films, um, but it's certainly used here. So I'm curious to to hear how that – landed for you. The camera also mm-hmm. will often, you know, make a sweeping pan that takes in the enormity of these rooms. So yes. we're not getting a masterpiece theater, set the camera in a gorgeous space and let the actors act, right? right? We're getting a lot of Lanthimos here. Yes, we It are. worked for you? Yeah, it absolutely worked for me. I think it's another real strength of the film. That fisheye effect, I didn't get a chance to really go back and study the film and see if this bears out moment to moment. But often I noticed it was employed when... We were seeing characters in times of distress, which made sense. Now, sometimes it's characters going down a hallway, but also there's a moment of tension in that scene, whatever they are going to or they are leaving from. But particularly in a scene like where the queen goes to speak before parliament, and let's just say it doesn't go very well. 
it's sort of foreshadowed, really, the couple moments just before it by that very distorted kind of fisheye lens, which I think does just kind of cue us into the fact that something is a little bit off. Those wide lenses and the wide frames that you mentioned, for me, really emphasize the order of everything, the structure of everything that seems to be in exactly its place. But then that's perfectly juxtaposed with the chaos inside and also outside, which is only really ever hinted at in this film. We never really do kind of get out of this court, which is for me, as I suggested in the setup, another way this is a Lanthimos film through and through. The cynicism, the dark humor, the dance scenes, the animals, if you will, but also the fact that this place has its own way of communication, its own rules, and you have all these characters trying to navigate that. He seems particularly invested in exploring that throughout his films. Think about the lobster and the hotel that they go to, right? Yep. That's the, the foundation for the entire film. And also one of the things he does really well, despite how vast this court is, And how big these frames are, you still get this kind of claustrophobic effect because he'll use the Orson Welles Citizen Kane technique of a lot of shots that are low angle. And when we're seeing a room and we're seeing a character or often characters in a room, we also see the ceilings. There was one I was just rewatching today where we see Emma Stone. I think it's in the hot chocolate scene and she goes to pour it. So she's bending down. She's already kind of low in the frame. The camera is below her looking up. The ceiling feels as if it's right on top of her because of that wide lens and the decision to make sure that that ceiling appears in that shot. The ceilings appear in almost every shot in this film, which just keeps all of these characters contained in a way that does feel appropriately oppressive. Well, that's probably why it's really unique in this film. Often we get a low angle shot of someone looking up at them. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, most often that conveys a sense of dominance and power to that character. It's the exact opposite here. It It, it somehow diminishes them, Mm -hmm. which, of course, exactly the aim of the entire film. So I think all of those techniques uh, are very effective. I didn't I'd have to go back and watch again as well to, you know, identify a common through line to the fisheye lens thing. But overall, it. It just does distort our understanding of what this movie is going to be. So I see it as part of the, again, this is what Barry Lyndon sets out to do is spoof the genre as it is being this beautiful example of it. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to have both ways. And I think it does have both ways. No, I agree. The fisheye lens is one way to kind of remind us that we're we're really tweaking something here. Um, The dance sequence is another thing where we all know this is coming in a costume drama. And and maybe, you know, a lot of times those dances, I'm a huge fan of musicals and dance numbers, but when I get one in a costume drama, I start to kind of sink a little bit because I feel like I know... it starts that way. Yeah, it starts that way. I feel like like I know these routines, right? Mm -hmm. And no, (laughs) goes a little bit differently. <laughs> yes. And so that's part of the satire, as are the wigs. I mean, these these are the craziest wigs I've seen in a costume drama in quite it's some true. time. Nicholas Holt's very good in this yes, film as yes. the leader of the, the Tories, party, the opposition right. party, who <laughs> apparently in this time actually just existed at court and were kind of a bug in the queen's ear or her advisor's ears every single day. I think he's really good, but you're right. That wig goes beyond anything we've seen before. Barry Lyndon, obviously, and Kubrick is a very good touchstone for this movie as well, including, you can tell, using the natural light and candlelight, which he oh, does yeah. in this film, like Linden. And I, scenes. I love the way that does give a certain beauty to those nighttime scenes, but also a darkness yes. that adds to the overall kind of grimness of it. And then in the daytime, 
it's all coming in from those huge windows. And it's England. So, of course, it's not sunny and gorgeous. It's gray outside, which also adds to this sense of this court maybe being not quite as regal as it perhaps purports to be. The favorite is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Not one, but two poll questions when we come back. The first asking listeners about the best movies of 2018. The other asking for their favorite Alfonso Cuaron film. Then our review of Cuaron's new one, the widely acclaimed Roma. Stay with us. Spotting is also brought to you this week in part by film spotting listeners like Jeff Machoda in Urbana, Illinois, who donated some money, Josh, not just to film spotting, but to the next picture show. We thank you for that, Jeff. And from Ben Alsop, he's in Chicago, the Pilsen area, and says he's a longtime listener, an infrequent donor, and recent career changer. We hope the move is going well for you, Ben. Thank you for your support. We also, Josh, have two new Silver Club donors to the show. They would be James Lee and Claire Kellogg. James and Claire from Parts Unknown, we thank them both as well as all of our monthly donors to the show, whether it's $2, $5, $10, whatever. It really does keep us doing what we're doing, so thank you. Strumming my pain with his fingers. You ready for this? Singing my life with his words. I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. <laughs> and are you ready for another Barry Jenkins masterpiece? The M word might not be too much of a stretch here, Josh. I have had a chance to see if Beale Street could talk, which Ooh, we intriguing. are going to talk about next week on the show. You at this point have not seen it yet. Is that I correct? I haven't. No, I can't wait. We heard Kiki Lane and Stephen James in the trailer for If Beale Street Could Talk. It is the follow-up to Barry Jenkins' Best Picture winning Moonlight. It goes into limited release on December 14th. It won't expand until Christmas Day. That's when it hits Chicago. We're not going to wait that long, though. Since you've already seen it, yep. I'm going to take a look at it. Shortly here, we're going to get to our review of If Beale Street Could Talk next week on next week's show. That's also not just a review of one acclaimed film, but also Horikazo Koreeda's Shoplifters, which was the winner of the top prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival. We'll have a review of that as well. And that's the reverse. You've seen it. I haven't. It sounds like I have a lot to look forward to as well with Kareda's latest. You do. Don't know if I'm going to go masterpiece, but okay. I certainly enjoyed it. And I know others might put that label on it. So, yeah, definitely a couple of really good films to dig into next week. And speaking of really good films and really good performances, we are going to share the results of the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards. This is an annual thing. We usually do mention it, give it at least a couple minutes here on Film Spotting. Now, the results will be out for listeners who actually care about such things. By the time people hear 
next week's show. We will have already announced those awards, but we'll dive into that a little bit, maybe share some of the insights as far as our own personal ballots go. I've already, of course, started because as we're taping this, we only have about 48 more hours to cram in every movie that we can and submit that first ballot. There are a couple categories in particular that are especially hard. They're always hard, narrowing it down to just five in any of these categories, but especially, I would say, breakthrough performer this year. I know this one we were talking about a little bit. There are at least 14 performances that I could single out and would consider worthy of being in the top five. Yeah, it's that's a pretty amazing category. Really, all of the acting categories I have stacked with good potential names. And I like reviewing the CFCA awards as well, even though they've already come out, because it does give us a chance to talk about some of our favorite performances, which otherwise we really don't dedicate a section of the show to. Obviously, it comes up in our reviews mm-hmm. and will even in our top 10 show. But here we can maybe talk a little bit about some of our favorite performances of the year. The end of the year also means time is running out to finalize our list of Golden Brick nominees. It's our annual award for the best underseen film by a new or new to us slash emerging filmmaker. And Josh, you're going to do a little bit of Golden Brick spotting this week. You have a recommendation, one to add to the list. Yeah, definitely. Hale County this morning, this evening. It's from a first-time filmmaker, so perfect qualification for the golden brick there. His name is Ramel Ross. And Adam, let me give you a couple of documentary titles to whet your appetite for pushing this one to the top of your catch-up list towards the end of the year here. Frederick Wiseman. Yep. I think there are some influences here I think you can tell. And how about a previous golden brick nominee camera person? from documentary cinematographer turned director Kirsten Johnson. Here's a few titles that may not have initially come to mind. Paul Schrader's First Reformed Hmm. and another current Golden Brick nominee, Chosen Custody of the Eyes, also a documentary set in a Rockford monastery. So, yes, Hale County this morning, this evening mixes the transcendental style that Schrader wrote so much about and worked in with First Reformed and that observational style that Wiseman brings to particular communities. Hale County is located in Alabama, and Ross moved there a number of years ago to coach basketball and also teach photography, and he ended up filming just a lot of everyday life along the way, has compiled it into what is something of found footage, though it's also very calculated. I mean, this guy has a distinct eye for where he wants to put the camera, how long he wants to look at something. And generally, it offers this perspective that I would say on the surface is maybe unremarkable in the everyday life things you've seen. But at the same time, it's hugely revealing because you're seeing it from uniquely different angles. And a lot of this is, you know, camera person, it differs, I think, because that was literally found footage comprised of extraneous footage from other documentaries that Johnson had worked on. This is stuff that's very planned out in many ways and often manipulated afterwards. Let me give you just one example. There's an extended sequence of a little boy just sitting in the tub, playing with soap bubbles, and he's wiping them off his hands. And all of a sudden, 
we start to dissolve into an image of the night sky and a full moon. And for this magical moment, it's a, it's as if this kid is holding this orb that that just changes the dynamic of everything. There are so many images that catch your breath like that, and some of them aren't even manipulated. I keep thinking of a very otherwise nondescript shot of an older woman tapping a fly swatter against her dress. But the fly swatter is this bright pink, and the dress is this blazing yellow. And together, it's just something that's beautiful on the surface, but also lets you soak in what it's like to be in this community. So the entire documentary is comprised of this. I will say that I don't know that it adds up to the thematic punch that camera person does, um, but it is also doing something different in that it's offering a different vision of a community that otherwise might be stereotyped. Ross actually opens the documentary with two sequences that are stereotypical. You see a handful of young black men listening to rap in a car, and one of them even glowers at the camera. And then he cuts to a group of worshipers in a church. Uh, And from there, he goes on to turn what are these familiar media images on their head by looking at them, again, just from different angles or expanding our sense of time. So it's experimental in a way that, uh, you know, we often look for in a golden brick film and uh, it's a new voice which we always like to to find when we're considering golden brick titles so for me it was really a wonderful experience and it's making that top end of the golden brick nominee list even more crowded Hmm. i almost dove into this last night actually as i was finishing up if beale street could talk and just looking at the very brief plot synopsis and now of course hearing it from you it confirms it as it is this piece that's all about observations on everyday african-american life it would have been perhaps a perfect companion to if beale street could talk i look forward to seeing it we are adding hale county to the golden brick nominee list we will announce our group of finalists and then ultimately share the winner at our live show the 2018 rap party that will be taking place this year at the university of chicago's logan center for the arts now we may have a couple other contenders to throw in there courtesy of our producer sam van Halgren. these are some recommendations that he says may or may not make the cut i'm going to throw them out there because we have heard from some listeners on social media that have brought up these films have inquired if we've had a chance to see them yet as it turns out neither of us have seen these yet but sam has our diligent producer has been watching a lot of stuff behind the scenes as well and those titles include happy is lazaro from italy's alice rohrwacher western from germany's valeska griesbach shirkers from sandy tan this was part of a recent pairing on our sister podcast the next picture show you can see happy is lazaro and shirkers both currently streaming on netflix and you can see western on amazon prime now if you recall the golden brick criteria josh the very broad, only maybe three or four bullet point criteria. One of them is it just has to be reviewed on the show, even if it's a fairly brief one, like the one you just gave for Hale County. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is all Sam has to do is join us here on the show. Yeah, I think we should get his voice on the show recommending these films, and then they would technically be eligible for brick consideration. I like that idea. We may just get him on. We mentioned the live show, and you have been cordially invited to join us for this event. Again, the date, Friday, January 11th, 7.30 p.m. It will take place at the wonderful Logan Center for the Arts on the south side of Chicago, actually on the University of Chicago campus. The tickets are on sale, and we have the link to purchase those tickets as well as more information at the top of the homepage at filmspotting.net, or you can also go to our website and click on events. We will share five categories, including our scene of the year, 
our favorite music moment, our favorite funniest moment, and more. We do also plan to partake in our usual massacre theater hijinks. Sam may join us on stage for that, as well as some guest participation. Yeah, I was going to say, we've mentioned that we're going to do massacre theater. I don't yeah. think we've mentioned yet that if you attend, you've got a shot of coming up yeah. on stage and being a part of that magic. You could make it magical, at least. There it is. You might just get called up if that entices you. And we will have some special guests. Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and her many film spotting appearances. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and his many film spotting appearances. And fewer film spotting appearances, but some nevertheless. Angelica Bastien from Vulture will also be appearing on stage and making some picks. It's a great venue, as we said. The screen is wonderful, and we will be seeing the scenes as we talk about them, or as many of them as we can. We hope to see you there again filmspotting.net and click on events or you can go to wbez.org slash events also at filmspotting.net that's where you can subscribe to our relatively new weekly film spotting newsletter this is anybody's welcome but it is really for the hardcore listeners i'd say if you want some behind the scenes stuff this is where you can get it new issues come out every monday um, get a sense of some of our planning conversations for how we put the show together if there's a late breaking schedule change you'll probably find it there and not be surprised when the show comes out and the movie you were waiting for has been replaced with something else. Also, all sorts of random musings when we're lucky from Sam Van Halgren. You can get some of his criticism there as well as he catches up with some of the movies we've been talking about. And if you are a film spotting poll maven, you can get your first crack at (laughs) voting because often Sam will drop the latest poll there ahead of time. Case in point, this week, The newsletter readers found out that we were asking, what is the best film of 2018? We put the link to that poll in Monday's newsletter. And as of Tuesday night, when we're recording, we've already got a couple hundred votes submitted. Your best film of 2018 options are, and yes, we know this is flawed. All of our poll questions are flawed. This one is especially tough when you are trying to come up with a good sampling of what a lot of critics, what a lot of film spotting listeners, what a lot of movie fans in general are excited about this year and trying to get a good cross section of that. And of course, if we failed with our options, we give you other. But the titles we did give you were Alex Garland's Annihilation, The Coen Brothers' The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, Paul Schrader's First Reformed, Hereditary, the debut feature from Ari Aster, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, Paul King's Paddington 2, or Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born, and probably a long shot here, but back at the midway point when we did our top five films of 2018 so far in July, You Were Never Really Here from Lynn Ramsey did get a lot of attention. So we gave you all of those, and if your favorite film of the year so far isn't among those titles, you can vote other and write it in. Now, I heard, Adam, that there are two films up at the top really racing against each other to win this. I don't know which two titles those are do you I want don't either you yet. want to let me you don't no, know either? I haven't even okay, looked myself Sam's, it's just Sam's Sam. keeping that close okay well we won't spoil it then but it sounds like there is a close race at the top there so well worth your weighing in on this poll Sam also did mention that there were several write-in votes for movies like Minding the Gap a Golden Brick nominee that's always encouraging to see Sorry to Bother You First Man Roma Leave No Trace Eighth Grade Burning and Also a Golden Brick nominee, The Rider. Great. Lots of good titles there that are making up the other category, which is right now in the lead in that poll. We would love to hear your comments and get your vote. You can do that at filmspotting.net. You can also, of course, send us a voicemail. 
with your vote, and we may just share it on the show. Send an audio file to feedback at filmspotting.net, or you can leave us a voicemail anytime, 312-264-0744. In this case, since it is the best of 2018, we're going to save these up possibly for that top 10 films of 2018 show. Tasha Robinson will be part of that. Michael Phillips will be part of that, as well as many guests submitting their favorite films of the year. You could be part of that if we choose yours. Again, send an audio file to feedback at filmspotting.net. Yeah, well, whatever's going on, whatever your political ideas are, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Oh, come on. She needs a doctor. You really don't Look, the government will take the baby and parade a posh black English lady as the mother. Nobody's taking my baby. We all know this government would never acknowledge the first human birth in 18 years from a future. I wanted Fuji. Why don't we explain to Mr. Fallon what they do to immigrants in this country? He knows. He's seen the cages. He's not that stupid. I'm not going to the... A scene there from Alfonso Coron's Children of Men. And before we get to our thoughts on his latest Roma, we thought we would share the results of our recent Roma-inspired poll question. We asked you, what is Coron's best film? And we did leave out Roma for those who had already had an opportunity to see it. Probably not a huge swath of the audience, but we really wanted to assess going into Roma where everyone stood on the filmography of Cuaron. And I think all three of us, including Sam, had a sense of where this would go. I think it played out about exactly as I imagine with the two movies at the top and the movie that decidedly won in alphabetical order. Those options were Children of Men, Gravity, The Prisoner of Azkaban, Itu Mama Tambien, or you could go with other. Actually, Roma is his eighth film. So we left a couple choices out there. How did the results play out? Just 1% for other and 6% for the prisoner of Azkaban. Gravity received 11% of the vote. I thought maybe that would have a chance of squeaking into second place there, but no. Second place went to Itumama Tambien with 19% of the vote. And yeah, running away with this was Children of Men with 63% of the vote. Here's Scott Gentry in Barkingside, UK, explaining why Children of Men is Coron at his most gripping Aside from being a uniquely bleak, completely believable vision of our near future, this is a picture which digs deep into our inherent selfishness exemplified in Britain's self-imposed exile from the wide world. The knowledge that even the good guys can be corrupted and that redemption is available to all. You know, an alternative retelling of the Christmas story. I'm right there with you, Scott. One of the standout sequences in Children of Men is absolutely a parable for Joseph and Mary, for sure. Ian Armstrong adds, Children of Men is such a moving and shocking piece of cinema that it is easy to see why its reputation grows every year. It is magnificently directed and has some of the best cinematography in recent memory. There are a lot of films where the future of humanity is at stake, but very few deliver that feeling in a meaningful way. Children of Men does. Darren also contributed. He said, if you watch the Harry Potter movies in close succession, it's incredible to see the shift from the second Chris Columbus movie to the Quaron entry. Yeah. I can't imagine. The franchise would have had financial success no matter what happened, but Quaron didn't settle for that. He helped his actors turn in performances that were emotionally involving, and he used the big budget that comes with the Harry Potter film to develop truly engaging visuals. It's a remarkable achievement, and I believe it has had a lasting impact on the artistic intent of at least some franchise films. Here, here, my favorite Harry Potter, as it is for many people. Michael Nabosny from Ann Arbor says, I love each of these films for different reasons, but I'm going with gravity. Aside from wanting to play devil's advocate to the conventional wisdom that has demoted the film to one-time watch status, I found the film stunning in its use of blocking and physical direction. The way Bullock moves across literal space, slowly and without control, is downright excruciating. And after several rewatches, knowing the literal path she takes, the film becomes even more demanding of your attention. It's the 
the best use of Quaron's style of long takes and patient editing, and it's why I keep coming back to it. I think Gravity is a great film. Willie Evans says Gravity and Prisoner of Azkaban are really good, and Children of Men is great, but none of them even come close to the brilliance of E2 Mama Tambien. Unfortunately, Quaron's best film is also one of his least seen. Like Adolescence itself, E2 Mama Tambien somehow manages to be sexy, funny, insightful, melancholic, heartwarming, endearing, tragic, and exciting all at the same time. One more note here from Jenny Tully. Children of Men is one of my personal top 10 favorite films, maybe even top five. That being said, I want to give a shout out to A Little Princess, which is also one of my personal favorites and has been since I saw it in the theater at the tender age of seven. The cinematography, also shot by Lubezki, is some of the most enchanting in a children's film, and the vulnerable and heartfelt performances still bring me to tears. It's an absolutely beautiful film. Quran is a master. And with that, let's get to Quaron's latest film, his eighth film, and one that I do think, Josh, had more people seen it by the time we posed that recent poll question, and we had included it. Instead of excluding it from the options, it might have changed the results dramatically. Probably. This is so good. Yeah. Oh, it's just wonderful. And I mean, I went in with all the advanced praise uh, in the back of my head mm-hmm. and was surprised and how great this movie is. Maybe a little bit of background. We touched on it at the start of the show, but essentially this is a fictionalized ode by Quaran to the domestic worker who cared for him and his siblings in Mexico City in the early 70s. The credits to the film dedicated to Libo, which I understand stands for Liboria Rodriguez. And I say that just because it feels like the movie is not for us. It's a gift for her. Mm-hmm. And we've been lucky enough to... Hmm. To partake in it in some way. The only thing, Adam, I can imagine, and I'm sure in our horrible world, there will be a wave of Roma backlash. The only thing I can imagine anyone having against this movie is that it they might feel is an uncomplicated depiction of a secular saint, that it's just too good to be true. This vision of this main character, Cleo, um, an indigenous mixed tech woman who, who lives in a little apartment behind this family's larger home, played by Yalitza Aparicio, a first-time actor. And maybe people will find this to be just too idealized. But hmm. there's though there's some truth to that, I also think that's what I love about it, is that it's, it's willing to have a blinkered view of someone or a version of someone from your early life who you are so grateful to have had mm-hmm. that you want them to be saintly. And we need to see someone who's saintly and realize that people can be this good in the world still. Um, That's how I receive the film. Hmm. And I also think that it's more layered than that as well. I mean, it it gives Cleo and both Quran in the storytelling and the actual technique, um, but also in this amazing performance by Aparicio, it gives her a full inner life beyond just the workings of the family. So, So this thing just completely bowled me over. Um, and I haven't even gotten to the the technical filmmaking stuff, which is, you know, probably among the most stunning uh, of Quran's career. I hadn't thought about that potential criticism at all. Honestly, for me, I really saw it as a case of a filmmaker looking at his past and trying to reckon with the way he probably did appropriately love and adore and appreciate even this person who was such a key part of his life, but still in some way took her for granted and didn't understand oh, for sure. the full scope of her life, didn't have any sense of who she truly was as an individual, saw her really as 
what she was, which is someone who was a facilitator in for his him. own sphere. Yeah, yeah, a facilitator for him and his entire family. And again, not that he didn't necessarily appreciate that or have deep love and respect for it, but still not really seeing her as a full complex person. And I think we do get that here in Roma. I was pretty much all in on this film from the opening shot, the opening credit sequence. Stunner. Yeah, where it's the Cleo character that we haven't seen her yet. We know that she is using water. Water, by the way, a dominant motif in this film. We could spend the entire review just cataloging all the ways water is used. But she has a bucket. I imagine we don't see it on screen and she is throwing that on this tiled driveway that she is trying to clean where they park their cars. And just with that water appearing, the first shot is just of the tile, the dry tile. And just with the water appearing, the water reflection then gives us this view of the sky. It gives us this view of this other world. It's almost as if it's a portal that's mm -hmm. revealed to another way of seeing the world for us as viewers. It sets up the entire film and also allows us in that moment to recognize that that's the kind of glimpse we're going to see. We're going to see these characters go through the same kind of transformation where they see the world in a different way. I also love in that moment that we do see an airplane fly yeah. overhead. Airplanes also appear again and again in this film. And for me, it was this kind of reminder that there is this larger outside world. Despite all of the turmoil, all the happenings that are going on within this family and within this main character in particular, there is still all of this strife and all of this activity that's going on. And rather than that minimizing their predicament or circumstances at all, it actually heightens it for me completely. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a theory about that, these larger forces at play in this movie that is otherwise a small domestic tale. But to go back to that opening shot, I don't know yet if Roma is going to be my favorite film of the year. It, it's got a decent chance of mm -hmm. being my favorite film of the year, but and this makes no sense, but I can I say that that opening shot is my favorite film of the year? Yeah. I mean, I just could have continued to watch that for the levels of revelation that came about this very simple activity. And you are right. It sets the tone for the entire film, causing us to pause, to look closely, think about the sort of chores that we'd rather not do or more commonly – in this case, pass on to someone else. And what's happening there in this dirty tile floor becoming, as you said beautifully, a portal, is Cleo is performing a miracle. This goes back to the idea of her as a saint. And miracles come up multiple and, times oh, in this movie. Yes, they do. And somehow the act, a small act like that, it's a strange and beautiful miracle being performed. And I also think that there's something about it being both elegant and mundane and mesmerizing. And this goes to your point about Quran wondering if he wasn't thankful enough. I do like the nods here that in some of the quiet visual asides, think about the moment when one of the boys instinctively puts his arms around Cleo as the mm -hmm. whole family is watching TV. They, in those gestures, they're acknowledging the miracles, right? With this deep abiding faith in her. And you just get these little moments throughout the film. It's all set up in that opening. Now, how yeah. about the bigger ones that you're referencing, the airplanes? Or 
the earthquake. Yeah. Uh, or, and you know what? I forgot about the earthquake when I was trying to catalog some of these catastrophes in the this film. The forest fire. The forest fire. Yeah. I mean, these the are earthquake. huge right. events yes. that happen. And for me, what they did is, uh, along with these amazing long tracking shots down the Mexico City nighttime streets, they, they take this particular family and also place them in a very particular social setting. Yes. And then when the world becomes unhinged in that way, what it did for me is to realize that, okay, maybe the domestic strife that we come to learn is happening within this family is somewhat common. A lot of families deal with these things, right? But to this family, it's everything. It's the tremor of an earthquake. It's the roar of a wildfire. And Mm -hmm. that's how it was experienced by these kids. And, And, you know, remembered, I don't know if these exact same things happen sure. uh, to Quran, but it, perhaps the equivalent, that's how it felt to that family. So these not not quite cosmic, but almost these global kind of catastrophes are just echoing what are these small domestic catastrophes happening. And I, I think it's not only opportunities for bravura filmmaking, mm-hmm. especially that wildfire sequence, but um, completely of a piece with what's going on thematically. Yeah. I knew very little about this, where it was going to go. I knew that it was autobiographical. And with that in mind, as I was watching it, I was thinking, well, is the little boy in this then? Because there are multiple kids and there are multiple yeah, boys. Kids. I was wondering if it is Pepe, the little one, the one who we probably see showed the most outward affection for her. Yeah. Is that then probably Coron? I assumed it was. And now I know it is because I did get that book. Did you get that coffee table oh, book? Oh, yeah. Crazy. That came, I guess, as part of award season. I was thumbing through that after seeing the film. And at the very end of it, he shows the actual pictures of the actual people. And he really has here pulled off quite an experiment because he managed to cast people who look identical to everyone from his life. So he is, to an extent here, at least based on those images, he is certainly trying to go back into his life very literally and trying to recast it and reimagine it and see what this new perspective brings to these events. And again, trying to bring this kind of understanding to the character here being Cleo. But I love the generosity of that, too, of Quaron. Like, think about what this film could have been and how it still might have been a great film had it been very clearly from the perspective of the young boy. Right. Had it been about the filmmaker saying, I'm going to go back into my past and I'm going to make this about my memories and I am going to try to honor her and I'm going to try to honor these larger stories, what this movie has to say about class and about race and all the turmoil in the early 70s in Mexico City at this time. But I'm going to do it from my very personal prism. And he doesn't do that, or he does it only as a director. He doesn't make it about the Pepe character. He keeps the focus completely on Cleo. And I think you were getting at this with your acknowledgement of the earthquake and the forest fire. The thing that's really staggering about this film for me is the scale, how intimate it is. It is this everyday story of a family Drill down even further. It's the story of this woman, Cleo, but everything they're swept up in is of such consequence. And there are at least four to five monumental domestic and personal trials that they endure that I'm not going to spoil here. But yeah, add in things like the forest fire, these natural disasters, and at least three major traumatic events that all unfold with a kind of matter of factness. I don't know how else to put it, but I think this is partly due to the use of long takes that Koran often favors here. They give it that sense of us as viewers experiencing the moment in real time. And so it does unfold in a way that we feel 
is like it happened, not the way a movie, I suppose, would typically capture that. I actually think that's where the black and white comes into play as well. There's this kind of contradiction where it instantly makes it artful and unrealistic, but also makes, I think, the extremes of what we see less harrowing somehow, as if the color would make it all seem too vivid. But talking about the scale, there is one event I'll touch on because it's not tied to the plot in a revealing way. And it's the moment where Roma, for me, I was in already, but it's where it went to another level entirely. And it's the student riots, Hmm. which I think are in some ways a microcosm for the entire film. And I researched this today. This is based on a real event in 1971, June 10th, 1971. The Corpus Christi Festival took place that day. This event is referred to as the Corpus Christi Massacre, a large student protest. It starts out peacefully, but there are some Mexican army soldiers there and they kill several of the demonstrators. And this is the moment when... Cleo and the grandmother character in the film go along with a driver, another servant, basically, to go and try to purchase some furniture. And at first, they really do just try to navigate around and try to ignore this uprising. They're just going to worry about the furniture as everyone inside is going to. They're all you get that sense again, because the whole movie sets us up for it, that everyone in that shop that we see is going through their own crisis or they're in their own domestic little drama and they're at that furniture store for a reason. And as much as everyone in that store wants to just go on with their lives and wants to be enveloped only in their own personal situations, Coron is constantly keying us and his viewers to the fact that it's impossible to ignore it with the use of sound, which is remarkable yeah, in this the film overall. Design. If you're fortunate enough to see it in a screening room or at a theater that uses that Dolby Atmos sound, so it it's all-encompassing and engulfing, and it overwhelms that scene, the sound of those protests going on outside as there's this relative tranquility inside the furniture store, but then also in the shots, where even as it's focused on the people shopping and our main characters, we're constantly getting glimpses of the protesters outside. And then when all hell breaks loose, you really feel like you're trapped in the middle of it, even within the precarious safety of the store. It's a remarkable sequence. You're so right about the sound design because before all hell breaks loose, yeah, the the chanting outside and what's going on outside is oppressive inside mm-hmm. um, because of that technical aspect. You also mentioned the long takes. Many of those, uh, this technique Juan uses is uh, of a, almost a 360 degree pan, mm-hmm. you know, taking in the space again that allows us to sit there and marinate in it longer. And it also encompasses, I'm thinking of one in particular where it's on the second floor of the house and all of the bedroom doors are open and it just pans across so we can see sort of the chaos of this busy, Mm -hmm. lively family. And we really get a sense of what it's like to be in that home. Now, to go back to that inner life that uh, Cleo has and that the movie gives her, just to give an example of that, she has a coworker, another domestic worker, and they share that apartment, Adela, played by Nancy Garcia. And we see them at the end of a day teasing each other and engaging in these, you know, kind of silly exercises. Uh, She talks Cleo into going on a double date where she meets a young man named Fermin, played by Jorge Antonio Guerrero. And they have, there's just this lovely interlude where the two of them escape to, I think it's a hotel room. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, A brief and tender love scene where he gives this nude demonstration of the martial arts moves that he's learning. And he's so sincere in trying to impress her with those. And Aparicio unleashes maybe her greatest weapon as an actor in this moment. And it's 
that smile. It's just the smile. I mean, this smile could could crumble a mountain. I'm so glad that she doesn't use it too much mm-hmm. in the film. It's almost and like she, doesn't. she and Quran know its power yeah. and are like, we're going to save it. Right. We're going to save it for when it matters. She is so good here because the range she brings to this performance, especially as Cleo's story becomes more complicated. I think about a scene she has with a doctor where she has this poignant reticence to share information that mm-hmm. and the camera's right there on her face, close. Yeah. It's not one of these wider, long takes. She manages that. Then the scenes with Sophia, the mother, played by Marina de Tavera, the two of them have an interesting relationship because... They share in a lot of ways this – they intuitively commiserate over the disappointments of men, Mm -hmm. right? But they can't do this verbally or explicitly because there are class barriers and cultural barriers between them. But the two actresses with little glances Mm -hmm. or pauses, you know what they're saying to each other. And those are just such wonderful little moments. And so I really don't want to overlook – Aparicio's contribution no. to what I, I she's, can't. She's amazing. I mean, when I think of another 2018 performance that is as crucial to its movie, a lead performance that the movie absolutely needs to work in every second, maybe Ethan Hawke in First Reformed, I would put on the same level as this, just huh. be, because of that's not a, a quality observation. It's just how those movies are built and what they need from their lead performers. And she absolutely delivers, I think, in every moment, including mm-hmm. the one we should dance around. But the climax, because yeah. I'll just say she has a, um, a line there that if she's not going to sell that, right. I mean, the whole movie's building up to it. <laughs> it and is. if she's not authentic But it could there, feel so false, and it doesn't. The whole thing would collapse, mm-hmm. and it's perfect. No, you're exactly right. And it's interesting that you mentioned first reform there, because I think about so many of the moments, the water comes into play or two, but I think about so many of the moments that feel spiritual, that take on some kind of transcendence just through their everydayness and the way they become sort of a ritual. And it's partly in seeing those same camera movements as she performs those same duties in that house every day. But you mentioned her friend. How about that wonderful moment early in the film where they light the candles and they do their stretches before bedtime? (laughs) Those even take on this larger significance within the film. Another movie or another filmmaker I definitely thought of watching this film, and I suppose people are instantly going to think of Fellini with the title Roma and also the use of black and white and eight and a half or La Dolce Vita, though I don't necessarily see a lot in common with those films thematically or in terms of their story. But someone we studied during our new Argentine cinema marathon and who has a film out this year, Zama, which I know you were a big fan of, Lucretia Martel. Yes. It's hard not to think of La Cienega as you watch this film, even oh, as for sure. it's absolutely its own unique entity that Koran is very personally crafted. It's all about that clash of classes and indigenous people, all of those scenes of domestic life and the children. We even get the Hacienda visit and the sense of dread <laughs> that pervades a lot of yeah. Martel's work, at least the work that we have seen. And that acknowledgement of what is happening just beyond the frame, sound being such a big part of her work as well. And this brings me back to the long takes as we talk about dread. And you mentioned it. I'm not going to get into any of the details of the end of this film, but the way in some major sequences, the camera does again put us in that position of experiencing in real time the agony or the despair that the characters on screen are going through. It's a trick to an extent, a cinematic trick, and that I do think by 
withholding certain information. And this is hard without breaking down the scene. I want to break down so badly. But by keeping the camera where it is and focused on what it is, and we know what the characters are looking at, what might be out there, or we don't know, and we're having to use our imagination, that's building up suspense. That only happens with this kind of technique where you're not relying on editing to give the audience everything to consider. We have to use our imagination there. But also, it does allow us to see her point of view, which brings us back to the whole endeavor of this film. I guess what I'm saying is it's not a surprise that we have Koran, if you think about Children of Men and his other work and some of those amazing sequences, that we would get that use of a long take here. It's not as flashy or maybe quite as stylish, but I think to this film's benefit. You know what that climactic long take does as well. And this relates back to my question of if if people will find this an idealized vision at all. It, it certainly is in some respects her Cleo's canonization as a as a saint, right? That moment. But at the same time, um, it also offers her, all I'll say is this very human moment of confession. Mm-hmm. So just when she's becoming angelic, um, she's falling back to earth. And to capture that all in the same moment is really something special to be able to pull off. I think it, it makes that climax work as well as it does. It makes the movie, confirms the movie to be as nuanced as it is and um, really absolutely a thing of wonder. Well, you are going to get a chance to see it if you have a Netflix subscription. It is available on that platform starting December 14th, but it is, as of the airing of this show, playing in limited release. And if you do get a chance to see it in a theater, I know this is one of those cliche things you hear boring film critic types like us say, but really if there was a film that warranted and did demand seeing it on the big screen, Roma qualifies. Now, Watch it on Netflix if that's the only way you can see it. It's still absolutely worth it. But if you have that opportunity, please do seek it out. And if you see it or have seen it and agree or disagree with our thoughts on it, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I had some other thoughts definitely I wanted to get into, but you know what? I have a feeling this film is going to come up again. It just might. Maybe in a few weeks and beyond. I'm going to save those for that. And that means that is our show. While you're waiting for Adam's other thoughts on Roma, go ahead Don't and hype it up too much. <laughs> visit filmspotting.net. That's where you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you're going to want to vote in the current film spotting poll because we are asking, what is the best film of 2018? Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Adam, holiday shopping. Yes. All done? You got everything you need? I've helped form lists for my children. Oh, I you're still not, on the list-making well, stage. I've purchased maybe about four things. Well, that's not bad. Oh, I mean, I'm going to need some time. I'm going to need to devote some time. If only I would stop watching movies, yeah. I could think about my children. Gets in the way. I'm not doing too bad myself. I think Debbie is only left, but I don't think she'd be thrilled with a film spotting t-shirt. No. Maybe not the best choice for her. No, she would For listeners, though, if you're looking for holiday gifts yet, you can go and peruse the Film Spotting store. We've got all sorts of merch at filmspotting.net slash shop. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And if you want to subscribe to the new weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash episodes. Do you have any good ideas for a spouse? Because I'm kind of stymied this year. All i right, got I'll, to admit. I'll give it some thought. Okay. I, I feel I appreciate like I it. know Sarah fairly well. Yeah. I'll see if, see if I can come up with something. All right. Out in wide release this weekend, Schindler's List, 
It's being re-released, hitting a thousand theaters in limited release, including right here in Chicago, Anna and the Apocalypse. It's a zombie Christmas musical. Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle, also available on Netflix this weekend. It's directed by Andy Serkis with voice work from Kate Blanchett, Christian Bale, and Benedict Cumberbatch, The Batch. That's that's a formidable lineup of voice actors there, Josh. And our lineup for next week's show right now is formidable as well on the tour front. We're going to talk about Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, If Beale Street Could Talk, and Hirokazu Koreeda's Palm Door winning film, Shoplifters. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department, at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. If you enjoyed our show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can find some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.